good morning. Uh, my name is Roddy Hanna. I am the John Nicholas body double for this weekend. So uh, hold on tight. <laughs> let, me set the let me set the stage for you what was going on. Uh, it was 1980. That was the year. Uh, I was in kindergarten, so some of you are saying, oh, man, he's old, and some of you are saying, wow, I'm old. But the reality is it was 1980. My mom and dad, okay, here, this is what's really interesting about all of this. My mom was a teacher, and my dad was an engineer. Yeah, I know, you're sitting there thinking, wow, what does that have to do with anything? Here's what it has to do with everything. They had a son who had a box of crayons that had one color in it. And uh, I'll explain what I mean by that. You know there was something going on in my family when I was the one sitting down at the kitchen table with my dad learning my colors. When my mom, who is the educator, is trying to teach me how, not teach me how to use my colors, it really means I probably pushed her to the limits. So there I sit across the table from my dad in the kitchen. So my dad, being an engineer, has this brilliant idea of a way to teach a boy a colors. So, you know, this will work great. What we're going to do, uh, do is we're going to lay out some M&Ms. We're going to lay out M&Ms on the table in between us, and Dad had the, I'll point to an M&M, and because I am so intrinsically motivated by M&Ms, I will say the right color. You see, they thought that I was just stubborn, and that's why I wouldn't say the right color. So here we go. Dad points to the first M&M. Rod, what color is that? Black. Rod, there are no black M&Ms. They're, they're none. They just they don't make them. Okay. And I watched my dad put the M&M in his mouth. Let's try this again. He slides another M&M across the table. He points to it. What color is that? Black. At this point, my dad is now starting. I can see the frustration. We've only done this two times. My mom had been doing this for probably the previous 10 weeks. This went on and continued to go on for the next 30 minutes. By the time we were done, my dad had eaten an entire bag of M&Ms, <laughs> and I had had none. Wow, what a great strategy for teaching your son his colors. It didn't work. So like I said, they had a son who had a, one color in his box of crayons, and that was black. So let's step forward. The year is 1982. Two years later, I think that makes me seven years old, uh, Mount Airy Elementary School in Mount Airy, Maryland. I grew up right across the Mason-Dixon line in a little town called Mount Airy uh, with the same parents that you just heard about before. And so here we go into elementary school. Now, what's interesting about this time in this situation is I'm walking down the hallway with my mom, which is not typical. Boys don't walk down the hallway with their mom in second grade, especially when school is going on. But here we go, walking down the hall. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, where are we going? What are we doing? What's the purpose of this? Uh, we walk down the hall. We hit the principal's office. At that point, I'm thinking, oh, I've been here before. And I remember leaning into the door for my mom. The door felt like it weighed about 700 pounds. I got the door open. She walked in. The nice lady was behind the desk, and we were going in to see Dr. Miller. My first thoughts as a seven-year-old boy is this is a really bad doctor that she had to come and teach at a school because she killed so many patients. <laughs> we go walking into Dr. Miller's office. Here we sit in Dr. Miller's office. I sit across the table from this administrator, this principal, and she starts talking to my mom. I'm really not paying much attention to what is going on because I'm kind of in my own world. If you know me, you'll probably realize that. I'm kind of in my own world, looking around, taking in all the details of the room. And I remember something explicitly being said. I remember Dr. Miller looking at my mom and saying to her, uh, Mrs. Hanna, you have to understand, your expectations for your son are too high. 
Okay, expectations. I don't even know what that means, but that doesn't sound like it's positive. And I could tell by the way that my mom reacted that it wasn't a good thing. Your expectations for your son are too high. My mom pushed back. I don't remember exactly how. My mom pushed back, and at that point, I remember Mrs. Miller, okay, really good counseling technique for those of you who are counselors. I'm going to rephrase what I just said in a different way to make it even more negative. So she looks at my mom, and she goes, okay, listen, let me put it to you this way. You should be glad if he makes it to eighth grade. Oh, some of you are like, ha <laughs> some of you are like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still coming to grips with this today, just so you know. <laughs> I don't know how I got hired here, only going to eighth grade, but I did it. So you should be glad if he just makes it to eighth grade. We st- I'm like, what in the world is going on? My mom pushes back once again, and Mrs. Miller has to rephrase it one more time. Because my mom is not going to accept what this woman is saying. My mom is not going to accept how this woman is really identifying me. She's putting me in this box. My mom pushes back, Mrs. Miller fires back again. Uh, Mrs. Hannah... I don't know if he's retarded. I don't know what's wrong. Okay, 1982, political correctness doesn't exist. (laughs) All right, we learned that real quick. Okay, second grade, I hear this. A lot of things start coming back into my memory. It all starts making sense. This is why when the best time of the day would happen at school, when we'd all get to come to the carpet and the teacher would read to us, that I was never allowed to sit in that carpet. I was always pulled out of that room and taken down the hall to the special room where I sat with a bunch of kids who I did not fit in with, but then it clicked with me that day. I did fit in with those kids. I started to believe this identity that had started to be built built for me all the way back when I was in kindergarten, first grade, second grade. And you know what? My story doesn't get much better. I jump ahead to the seventh grade. Seventh grade. My teacher in seventh grade's name was Mr. Davis. Mr. Davis was a a short man uh, and... I remember we were playing a game in class, and the game we were playing in class was baseball. And the way we were going to play this was he had all the planets drawn out on the board without their names. So it would have been the sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and then whatever happens after that. So we come in, and they're all by size, and he says, this is how we're going to play this game. Those of you who can come in, uh, if if you can get the answer right that I ask you, your team gets a point. If you don't get the answer right... Your team loses a point. Okay, it's bad enough that I'm probably going to get it wrong, but it's even worse that I'm going to get it wrong and my team's going to lose because of it. No pressure, no pressure. Then he throws this caveat in. Uh, If you spell it wrong on the board, uh, you're also going to lose. It isn't correct, even if you get the right answer. Okay, so let let me throw you in a little bit of what my background is a little bit. I'm dyslexic, profoundly dyslexic. That has some impacts on the way that I approach the world and see things. One, I can't spell. Two, I don't read well. So here we go, stepping into this world where this guy is forcing me right into this mold and automatically I feel like I'm going to (sighs) fail. I remember sitting there thinking, okay, son, I know the first big one is son. Three letters, I got this. Mr. Davis, Chad, would you please come to the board? Chad gets it, of course, because Chad is just like Chad. Oh my goodness gracious. Next one we go to, I'm like, okay, I know that's Mercury. Oh, don't... I have no idea how you spell that. I think it has a Q-U-E-R-Y in it. And that doesn't, Lisa comes up for that one. The next one was Venus. Venus, how appropriately that Mia Gerard got called for Venus. Mia Gerard was Venus. I mean, at that time in seventh grade, I thought she was it. And I got so enamored with her that I didn't really pay attention to what happened next. Mr. Hannah. Yes? 
would you please come to the board? I'm like, oh, man, it's earth. I know this. I walk up. I grab the chalk. With confidence, I pick the chalk up, and I start writing earth, all right? We all know how to spell earth, right? Spell it out loud. So who taught you this? Because what I spelled on the board was what it sounds like to me, earth, I-R-T-H. Okay, a couple things you never do in seventh grade. One is look foolish in front of your classmates because they will never let you live it down. At that point, the class erupts. Mr. Davis is so frustrated, he comes in and grabs me by the arm because I'm naturally a troublemaker, which I'm really not, but that's what I am viewed just because of the way I learn within the classroom. He pulls me out into the hallway and he stands me there, and I remember he sits and he puts his thumb right in my finger, right in my chest, and he goes, what is your deal? Why do you have to turn everything into a joke? I'm like, I wasn't trying to turn it into a joke. Go in there and spell it right. You know you don't spell earth that way. I'm like, man, I don't know you don't spell earth that way. I didn't tell him that, but that's what I'm thinking. So here I go back into the classroom, back into face my shame before my classmates. They've identified me from this point forward. You know, the kids liked me, you know, because I used some coping mechanisms. I, I created humor, and I did other things to make myself comfortable in front of people. I go in, and as I walk in, there sits Mia, and she makes eye contact with me, and I start watching. She's trying to say something to me, and she's going, E-A-R-T-H. Oh, good. I erase what I wrote, E-A-R-T-H, earth. That makes no sense. <laughs> I turn around, and as I make eye contact with Mia, all I see in her eyes is pity. And I sit there and I think to myself, this is what I am. This is what God made me to be. I do not have a future. What in the world is God going to do with me, a guy who can't spell, a guy who can read, but he doesn't know what he's reading? I can read a book, and I can't tell you what I read to this day. I, I'm just sitting here thinking, I'm broken. I'm broken. My hardships and the way people viewed me were my identity. That's what I used to determine what my identity was. And as hard as I have tried, and as hard as I did try, and let me tell you, I am still working at this. As hard as I tried to break this identity, I struggled day to day to day through my 20s, through my 30s. I'm 40 now. Even into my 40s, I still go back to elementary school and think through, I am a loser. What's ironic about this whole story, if you knew me, and if you knew the journey that I traveled, and if you knew the way that God kind of, there's only one way to describe it, God moved me through this journey. It doesn't make any sense. I come to you today stepping away from what people would say was the top of my career. I stand before you today because that wasn't my passion. That was my job. So to walk away from what you know and to walk away from what you are comfortable at, and to walk away from what you're good at, and to step into something that you've never done before at the age of 42 or 43, I don't know how old I am, <laughs> is intimidating. Is intimidating. So what about you? You know, I tell you a story that might not connect with you at all. Some of you are probably, you worked through elementary school or high school, you had 4.0s, God bless you, I wish I was you, but I don't even know what that would be like. I don't even know what that would be like. Um, this forced me to a point of living my life in hiding. It forced me to a point to where I didn't pursue the way that God made me. 
And, and maybe for you, it's that job. It's that job that you use to use as your identity because, hey, look at me. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a CFO. I'm a vice president. I'm a high-level director, whatever it is. I own my own business, whatever it is. And I'm not trying to tell you that there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with success. That's not what I'm here to tell you. Maybe it's your children. You look at your kids and you're like, my kids look the part. My kids don't embarrass me. I don't know if my kids are in here. I can't say anything. My kids don't embarrass me. You know, uh, maybe it's past abuse. Some of you live in a world where you carry into your life abuse, something that happened to you in the past, whether it was physical, whether it was sexual, and you just never let go of that thing. And you just let that thing carry you. You carry that thing around like it's a burden. And it keeps you from being able to do and follow. You know, some of us, it's rebellion. You know, I'm going to do everything I can to keep you from liking me. Because if I can keep these walls up, you're not going to know who I really am, and you're not going to know the pain that I experience on the inside. I skipped a slide. What thoughts are holding you back? What thoughts are holding you back? And, and what's interesting about this, and this is what I really want to drive home to you today, that you reflect God's image, and you have something that others need. You know, for me, it took me some time. I saw glimpses of this as I walked through life that I really believed that I reflect the image of God and that I did have something that others needed, but I didn't know what it was. I was big. I figured the only thing that people needed me for was to, like, move heavy things. But as I worked through life, I realized that God had another plan. So what does God say about all of this? You know, today, we're going to take a snapshot of, like, the first three chapters of Genesis. For those of you who are new to church, I encourage you, Genesis is like the first book of the Bible. It's, we're going to be in the first chapter of the Bible. We're going to be in page one. And there's a pew, I'm sorry, wrong word. There's a chair Bible. That's what we have, sit on. There's a Bible in front of you in the chair. And uh, I encourage you to uh, take that out and, and, and follow along as we read. And we're going to jump into Genesis 1, chapter 26 and 20, or Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. And, and then God said, let us make mankind in our image in our image, and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image, and the image he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but what I really want to point out to you quickly here is God created in our image, in our likeness. Who's present at this point? So we're looking at day six of creation where God steps in and he says, I'm going to make the pinnacle of my creation, which is going to be man. And there starts to be a conversation that happens. It's just God. There's nobody else there. Who's he talking to? Well, he's talking. He's not talking to himself. He's talking to three distinct individuals. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there they, there they stand on this newly formed earth having a conversation about man. And there's something that's specifically set apart about man than the rest of creation. Let's create him in our image, in the image of God. So they went ahead and did that. This is critical to understand. You know, why is it so critical to understand uh, what be, being created in the image of God means? For some of us, we've never captured or understood this. For me, it's something that I have to deal with every day. I have to remind myself of this. It's so important because it's misunderstood. 
The image of God is misunderstood, and, and most Christ followers have heard the concept, but few grasp its profound significance or its meaning. It's, it's foundational for who we are. You know, the image of God is foundational concept for understanding our significance and our purpose. And understanding how we are made in God's image helps us to see the basis for dignity and purpose for our work. You know, when my view of the way that I am representing the image of God is distorted, I really start to take things on my own and try to solve my own problems. But without having a proper understanding of what it means to be created in God's image, we're stuck believing that our image is created by what, we, by what you say about me and what I believe about myself. So in essence, what I'm doing is taking and making myself God and saying, God, the one that created me, you really don't know what you were doing. You didn't know what you were doing when you made me. So understanding this image is critical for eliminating distortions in our life. So we think about the word create. Not a real big, tough word to understand, but to bring something into existence or to cause something to happen as a result of one's actions. This is what God did to us. God created. He brought us into existence. And he did this through his actions. And an interesting thing to recognize and understand about a creation is that a creation always has a purpose. Always has a purpose. I mean, even things that artists make that make no sense to me are created for a purpose because they bring somebody joy. And why did God create us? And this is critical to understand. Genesis 1.28, Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Okay. Why did God create us? I'm used to teaching, so I ask questions, and you can yell it out. Why did God create us? He loves us. Great. He loves us. Ultimately, he loves us. And he loves us so much that he did create an environment for us. And why do we live in this? Why, did, why were Adam and Eve placed in this environment Eden, to rule for a purpose. They were placed in that environment to rule and, and have a purpose. And not only to rule and reign over it, to make it better, to set forward what God had made with a purpose to make it better than it was, um, he gave us this another thing, and this was to create little rulers. And that's probably a different sermon altogether. But, uh, you know, that's one of those yay God moments. So we jump ahead. We jump ahead. Jump into verse, uh, chapter 2. I love this. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. In the original creation, in the way that God set us in Eden, there was no shame. They walked around naked together, kind of like it's just what you do, and in the garden, and they had communion with God, perfect communion with God. And the picture that I see here is that there was absolutely no attempt to cover who they were. Okay, so this is what we're going to do. This is my idea. I've really been trying to think through how we can teach the idea of shame so we understand it and grasp it better. So next Sunday, John doesn't know we're doing this. Next Sunday, I declare next Sunday Naked Sunday here at Cocalico. <laughs> so we are all going to come to church naked. All right? So if, for those of you who struggle with the idea of this and you think this is, this is ludicrous... I'll, I can't drive here naked. Well, you can change when you get here. It's fine. Uh, the rest of us will be, and we're not going to tell John until he stands up on stage. All right? This idea, I mean, even saying it out loud 
is ridiculous. Even saying the idea out loud that I could stand before you naked is crazy. I mean, I was the guy when I went to the beach. I take my shirt off. Kids were pushing me back in the ocean. So it's, it's just the idea of what shame you feel, it's an impact on our life. So the reality of shame is it impacts us. But at this point, they were naked and they felt no shame. They were naked and they felt no shame. What in the world happened? What happened to the perfect image? You know, in the garden, uh, we were perfect like God. We ruled perfectly like God. We had perfect communication with God. We were unique over the rest of creation. We had an intimate relationship with God. We were naked and we were unashamed. But we know something changed, right? This isn't rocket science, what we're talking about. We're in the first three chapters of the Bible. You know, we know that something cataclysmic happened to change this relationship. What changed? What changed? You know? So here we go. There was a new counselor that entered the scene. That counselor was Satan. He convinced Eve, hey, if you do this, things are going to get better. You're going to be like God. He just doesn't want you to understand everything. And because of this, their eyes were both opened. And they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Hmm. With shame, this entrance of sin, with shame came this desire to hide. Came this desire to hide using methods that make no sense at all, and they sewed together leaves, and they hung them on their body because they were going to cover up what they felt. What takes place? The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as they were walking in the garden, as he was walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man. Where are you? This is God talking to Adam. Where are you? Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid, and he said, <laughs> my favorite, one of my favorite lines in the Bible, who told you you were naked? Who told you you were naked? Shame. Shame. Shame is to have a powerful feeling or emotional distress, sometimes to the point of despair, by having done something wrong or receiving the disapproval of those around you. See, if I go all the way back to seventh grade, the shame that I felt because I felt disapproved, I felt rejected, I didn't feel accepted, I carried that. And I carried that, and I used that shame to, as my grid work to make decisions. And I knew that I could protect myself, or so I thought. But what we see is, is, is because of shame, <laughs> there's an attempt for us to hide ourselves. And we see this in, in Genesis clearly. They attempted to hide themselves, and... and and so they covered themselves with things that didn't matter. Similarly, we do the same thing. For me, I've had a pooling in my life that God was leading me the direction towards the local church for years, but I was scared to death to take the step to do it. You know, because I recognize I'm imperfect. I recognize that I struggle, and I recognize that I have things in my life I'm just not proud of. And goodness, everybody knows that if you're a pastor, you have to be perfect. And that's what I love about this place. It's safe. It's a place for me to come where I can live out my image the way that God created me.
But the reality is we distort our image. As soon as Adam and Eve chose their own way, they fell from glory, the image was broken, and their intimacy with God, God was, was shattered. You know? So God, I'm taken and moved out of the garden. We're taken and moved out of that perfect communion with God where we could come to God and we could share. And it was broken. It was broken. But what's great, what's great about this, while I was dead in my transgressions and sins in Ephesians 2.1, while there was nothing I could do, dead men don't walk. Dead men don't do much. They don't do anything. I was dead in my transgressions to sin. God had to do something, so he did. You know, we have no ability whatsoever to save ourselves. I had no ability whatsoever to remove the guilt and shame that I felt. None at all. So this is what we do. This is how we live our life. You know, we, we do everything we can to escape situations, locations, and relationships, but we can't escape ourselves. I did everything I could to keep myself from stepping into relationship here with you because I wanted to stay safe, I wanted to manage my image before people, and I wanted to be accepted. Okay, you take a 43-year-old guy, however old I am, 42, and you put him into an environment that's new, and you take him away from everything he knows, and you say, step in here and flourish. How in the world am I going to do that? It's a huge step of faith. Huge step of faith. <laughs> but God, this is the best but in the Bible. But God, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. It's by grace you have been saved. And not only does it end there, it continues on because there's some great outcomes because of this grace. And we keep looking and it says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork. We were dead, but God came through Jesus Christ, made me alive, and not only did he make me alive, he created me. I'm his handiwork. I am wonderful. I am wonderful. I am God's creation. You are God's creation. Some of you are going to be surprised when you get to heaven and your glorified body looks like mine. But I am God's creation. The work of Christ on the cross was not a work to cover up our shame. It was a work to remove our shame. Let me put it to you this way. Let me draw this illustration differently. Living in Lancaster County, I get exposed to a whole bunch of new smells. <laughs> I can walk around with Febreze, and I can go into a cow pasture, and I'm going to fix the smell in Lancaster County, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spray them with Febreze. I'm going to walk up and spray every cow patty I can. I'm giving every single one of you a can of Febreze, because we've got to fix this place. So we walk around, I think it smells good. We walk around, and we're smelling all this stuff, but what's the reality? Is Febreze going to change anything? No. But that's what we do. Our lives 
our lives before Christ are like that cow pie. And what we do is we do everything we can to dress it up. We hang things on it. We make it look the way that I think you'll accept it. But when we're done and in the reality, when it's done, what do we have left? A decorated cow pie. <laughs> That's not what Christ came to do. Bottom line, do you live in freedom? Do you live in freedom? Just like Adam and Eve, we were set on this earth for purpose. Our purpose was shattered because of the entrance of sin in the garden. But God made a way. Do you live in freedom? How do we live in freedom? <laughs> One, I have to recognize the lies that I believe. I had to recognize the lies that I believe. Some of those lies were I gain my self-worth by what you think about me. Um, <laughs> the other one was this. I'm adequately able enough to cover who I really am. Man, and I came to a realization that there was nothing I could do. And if I can do this, if I can recognize the lies I believe, my passion, my passion is going to be rediscovered. And I can live confidently before others. I can live with confidence. I can stand with confidence here on stage because it's not the mission. It's not, it's not my message. It's God's message. All right? It, it's not about me and how I feel. Because let me tell you, if it was, I wouldn't have been here if you had seen me Wednesday night. Wednesday night, I was gripped with fear because of you. I was gripped with fear because I went all the way back to what has transpired in my life. And I said, it's just going to happen again. I'm going to stand up here and look foolish. I'm going to stand up here. This is like my maiden voyage with you all, you know, and I'm going to crash and burn on stage. And then, like, Kurt's going to come up to me afterwards and say, man, we sure shouldn't have hired you. <laughs> I can live in freedom. The next thing I had to do is I had to realize who I am or you have to realize who you are. Am I in Christ? Do I live my life in Christ where his blood, his love covers my shame, where I can live in freedom to serve with passion? Or am I on my own where works cover? I cover my nakedness and my shame with my own spiritual Febreze, walking around spraying it on myself, going, hey, take a whiff. And the reality is, I can't do it well. If I do this, I'm going to have a passion that's rediscovered, that's redirected. <laughs> and I can serve others with confidence and knowing that I am God's workmanship. And I can serve myself. <laughs> or I can serve myself in order to protect my image. And I'm faced with that decision every day. And the third thing that I needed to do, that we need to do, is relentlessly cling to truth. You know, I do not determine what is true. Um, Christ is the only solution for my shame. And it doesn't matter how hard I try, I'm not going to make myself any better. It's all Christ. And if I do this, I'll have a passion that is re restored. I don't have to live out in fear. 
I can serve God with my whole heart. So here's the question. Here's the question for you. Do we live our lives in freedom? Do you live your life in freedom? You might not, and you realize today that you need to meet God for the first time. You've never had a relationship that's taken you past the cross. You've come right up to the cross and you said, here, take my junk, and you turn around and walk away from it. And then you just collect more junk. And then you come back to the cross and you drop your junk. And you never take the step past the cross. And you never take the step to the point to where you're living through the power of what happened on that cross. Maybe for some of us, we're realizing that, man, I serve the creation more than I serve the creator. And I serve the creation by letting it have control of my life. I serve the creation by letting what you say determine my value. So I want you to take a moment, close your eyes with me, and I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine, if you would, what it would look like if we at Cocalico Community Church, what would it look like if we lived our lives in freedom? What would it look like if we were a church? And I really believe in a lot of ways we are. But if we were a church that lived our lives in freedom from uh, the guilt and the shame that ensnares us, the weight and the burden that holds us. Last week, John alluded to the, pat, to the idea that we needed to be givers and not takers. He went on to say we need to be contributors and not consumers. We need to be crew members and not passengers. You know, one of the things that we're shooting for at the church, our, 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 one of our goals is to love God fully and to love others deeply. For some of you today, you have never reached a point where you've taken your life and you've given it to Christ. You've, hold on, you've held on to some of your guilt, you've hung on to some of your shame, and you use it as that thing, and it becomes an excuse. No, 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 no. I can't serve, and I won't serve, because you don't know who I am. You don't know how I'm made. I have nothing to offer. My challenge to you is to recognize what Christ did. To recognize what Christ did for you. You went from death to life. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we are presented with messages and we fight every day to live in a freedom that you created in us. Sometimes that's because we don't have a relationship with you. We've never crossed the threshold of the cross. We walk up to it and we walk away from it, but we never walk past it. 
for others of us, it's the first time we've even heard the message of the cross. It's the first time we've even heard that there can be freedom outside of the way that I view I am, outside of the messages that run through my head. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that would experience freedom from bondage, freedom from those chains and weights that hang on to us. And Lord, that we would step into this community and we would own this community. Lord, that people would look at us and say, now there's a group of people that love the Lord with all their heart. 